Hey, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com. All right, welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast. I'm your host, Brian Alzate. I'm having my friend Patrick Borgman with us today. What's up, Pat? How's it going? Going pretty good, man. Can't complain these days. I guess let's just dive into your story. Um, I know a lot about it. A lot of it's verified because I've met your family. <laughs> I've been to Texas and uh, your dad's told me like wicked crazy stories about you. How long have you been clean now? Uh, since October 11th, 2015. A little bit, uh, five years and some change. Awesome, bro. Fuck yeah. yeah. All right. So let's hear where are you from? How did it all start? So uh, born and raised in Austin, Texas. You know, I was actually reflecting on this a little bit when you asked me to come you know, share about my story on this podcast. And, um, you know, on paper, man, I, I had a good upbringing. I was raised in the suburbs. You know, we had a two-car garage, two-story house, little brother, little sister. Mom was a homemaker and my dad was a dentist. You know, it's funny because in that environment, right, when you're around like all the suburban families, my family was always different. We were super dysfunctional. I could cuss in front of my mom no boundaries. Like basically I told my mom how the house was going to run, you know? And when I would go to other parents' house, I would act like super good in front of them. Like I was like the good kid. Mm -hmm. But like in my own house, it wasn't like that. It was like, bro, it was like a a zoo. And my father was so, you know, he was a full-time dentist. And so like, you know, he'd be at work. It was just crazy. But I had a good man, you know, I never went without but like something I do remember at a young age is, you know, like my mom put me into a lot of sports. I actually really like sports, but when my, you know, like when your mom forces you to do something and just the appeal goes away, she would constantly never pick me up on time for her. So like, like we would do swim practice, right? And then we would jump from swim practice and she'd be so late. Uh, baseball was like supposed to be two hours after, but by the time she got there, baseball was like 10 minutes away. So she'd throw us in the car and she'd be like, oh, I forgot your underwear. And I'd be like, what? And she'd be like, yeah, wear your Speedo. I'd be like, okay. So, like, I'd throw my Speedo on, right? The, you know, the baseball uh, pants were white. And, you know, I'm like eight or nine, so I don't really know shit. Putting these white baseball pants over this, like, neon Speedo. And I remember I get out to the outfield, and, like, all the kids were pointing at me just laughing. Because my under my, my Speedo was just showing through this white baseball pants, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I started identifying baseball with. And it was, like, you know, embarrassment. So I hated sports, you know? I started hating my mom at a young age. And I think, you know, like, part of the whole addiction thing is allowing that to consume you. You know, I still think about it to this day, and I still get, you know... Yeah, I think as an addict, we, like, relive horrific stories over and over in her head where like someone else might kind of just get over it right like i feel like a normal person would have just been like making fun of the kids pointing at him but like i remember i probably went home and cried for like three straight hours that night you know and then i started you know dropping out of sports you know i started really not trusting my mother at a young age i started really getting into my first addiction which was computers and video games it was like my underworld 
you know, back then before MP3s were like a big thing, I'd be on there pirating MP3s, getting all the latest rap, you know, underground hip hop albums, burning CDs. I remember like, dude, there was a time if you could burn, you know, being from Texas, it was, it was the chopped and screwed and DJ screw albums, bro. You were a God. You could literally go to school and sell those bitches for like 10 bucks a piece. I noticed, you know, something about the addictive uh, gene is when I got into something, I got into it. You know, I knew everything about, you know, rappers. When it came to a video game, I would obsess and play it until like I mastered it. Doing those things and isolating, even though, you know, my upbringing, like I said, was always very social. So I had a lot of friends. I started gaining a lot of weight. My nickname was Fat Pat in middle school. And I remember, bro, I remember asking this girl I really had a crush on in fifth grade. In fifth grade, when we got to middle school, all my friends started asking girls out. So I remember the first time I asked a girl out, you know, like you you muster up the courage. You're worried what she's going to say. And I remember she looked at me. She goes, no, you're too fat, you know. And like, I don't think I ever (laughs) to this day asked out another girl, you know, like my my self-esteem was crushed. Um, You know, I think food was a first addiction as well. And, you know, basically... I never really liked myself, you know, looking back, like I never really loved or liked myself. I always wanted to be skinnier. I always wanted to be in shape. You know, I think that that formed my, you know, in middle school, when kids started smoking pot and stuff, that was the group I kind of like gravitated towards because we're all kind of like outcasts, you know, and the skaters and, you know, like if if you had the wrong airwalks back then, you were a poser, you know, like the whole dynamic. And uh, I feel like I fit in with that group. My parents uh, were out of town for the weekend, and me and my cousin broke into my uh, parents' closet, and we found this box, right? And there was a lockbox, and my cousin somehow, you know, jimmied it open, and dude, we found like a quarter of swagweed and a bunch of papers. And before that, I was terrified of drugs. You know, my mom used to instill in me that drugs are the devil, and if I ever catch you smoking weed, blah, 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 and I caught my parents, obviously, smoke weed. So I like basically extorted them, you know? And I was like, uh, you guys are going to let me smoke weed. My freshman year, I started getting a lot of notoriety in the high school because I could throw parties at my house, like nonstop, you know? Like when we had keg parties on the weekends, my house would be the place people would end up at. You know, I started selling weed. Dude, I did that same passion I had for the video games and shit like that and took it to the weed. I mean, I had every bong, you know, like first it was like the shitty graphics bong with the clown mm-hmm. at the bottom, you know, and then it was like the glass on glass, just getting into that lifestyle, man. And at that time, drugs were awesome. Drugs were my identity. You know what I mean? And I really liked that. And uh, what kind of rap were you listening to? Oh, dude. So back in Texas, it was all screw, bro. We grew up on screw. That was the jam, even though I liked everything. Like, I liked, you know, like like the New York hip-hop underground scene with Big L. I was, like, discovering rap like that. Dude, I remember Miami popped off with Trick Daddy. You know, I was really into rap and the culture, so, like, I would, like, study the coasts and how, and like, the Bay Area rap, you know, like, when E-40 was big. But rap music influenced me a lot to the whole gangster and selling drug side, you know? Like, I think, like, every suburban white kid just, that, for some reason, appeals to them so dramatically, you know? You know, I remember, though, I always remember this, right? So, like, like in Texas, you get the dirt, shitty weed, right? You can buy an ounce for, like, 40 bucks. And then you get the good weed, which is, like, 400 an ounce, right? And I was always looking for that perfect bud that was going to take me to how I wanted to feel, 
You know, I don't know if like like if you can relate to that, but like I always thought there'd be some like badass weed strand that would get me high how I wanted to get high. And I could never find that in weed. And the first time I found that actually was an Adderall. Cause uh, you know, when you're 15, you know how high school is? Dude, Adderalls are just passed around. You know what I mean? And the first time I took some Adderall, I felt like I could talk to girls. That's all I ever wanted, dude, mm-hmm. was feel confident to talk to women. And Adderall did that for me. And it pro- <laughs> It probably talked to a wall, but it made me think I could. So like, you know, if you look in hindsight, I was probably just acting like an asshole in front of these chicks talking my fucking, you know, mouth mm-hmm. off and whatnot. It was the first time where I noticed like a pill could take me to like where I wanted to feel, you know, and I would like try to balance it out with smoking weed. But dude, shit got crazy in my house. Right. So my mom, she was having her issues. Right. And then, um, bro, like I was growing weed. The cops were starting to show up at my house every weekend. We were getting like, the door was getting kicked in and raided. You'd see like 15 little fucking punk ass kids running out the side. And then the DEA got involved. Someone like tried building a case against whatever was going on in my house. I think the na- we were in a nice neighborhood. So I think they thought we were selling heavy drugs. Mm-hmm. And bro, they like dug through my trash. They found like all these like broken the bombs. DEA. The DEA, dude, there's a whole file. They When they're done with everything, they give you the whole file, right? Because there, there was never a case. It was, they didn't give a shit. And I remember, so we had a sauna next to, like, I had a three-story house. I actually just Googled it. This house is worth $1.2 million in Austin right now, right? Fucking nice house. It had a sauna in it. And I was growing weed in the sauna. And for some reason, when the DEA came and searched everything, they didn't think to check the sauna. So they didn't find anything. They found some, like, resin and, you know, like a quarter of some shake. They just didn't care about that. They thought they were there to find some real fucking drugs, you know? I remember that was like really like kind of traumatizing to me because I was a senior in high school. You know, I I went off to college, you know, I stayed taking the Adderall. I got my own prescription by this time. But what what got really big was the Oxycontin scene. And we were already starting to sip lean because it was, you know, it was part of the culture of rap. But like I never got an opiate buzz. And I remember to this day, man. Yeah, I remember like I was already hardcore on opiates. So like whenever I would do lean. It, it's nothing like snorting an oxygen. It's a joke, like, right? Yeah, it's like... Like, those rappers are yeah. just wasting their money, you know? <laughs> it's crazy. So, like... So, I remember, dude. So, Eminem just came out with the album Purple Pills, right? Mm-hmm. We're about to take a road oh, trip. D12. D12, bro. It's like... So, bro, <laughs> I remember, bro. This is... I get my first 40 milligram Oxycontin. And, you know, like... It, it wasn't like I just wanted to, like... Because, like, Oxy's there saying it's killing people. Shit's crazy. You know? I was just experimenting. And my boys were down to do it. We took 140 and we cut it up into three pieces. We crushed it and we snorted it. Dude, I remember that song came on. I was so fucking high. I was nodding out. I thought I was in the song. You know, like I woke up, I was itching all over. And I literally felt the best feeling I'd ever felt in my entire life. I was probably about 18 or 19, snorting medical grade heroin, not really knowing what medical grade heroin really is. Mm-hmm. And I found that drug that I'd always been looking for. You know, I found I fell in love. Yeah, so like people always ask me like what's so great about opiates cuz like when you look at someone who's high on opiates not and out you're like why would you want to feel that way? Yeah. And I always explain it's like right when you have an orgasm that that moment where like your body goes totally loose and like limp and like you can't even have a thought like that yeah. total relaxation but for hours. You know, yeah, dude, it's like busting a nut for eight straight hours of God <laughs> with God mixed in, just talking to you. You know, your whole waves of you for and what's and fun- you had dreams when you when I would nod out, I would have like little dreams and I would talk. Dude. Yeah, like mumble. Right, because I remember like like the Eminem song was on the TV. 
But when I'm nodding out, I was like, <laughs> like, it, like, I don't know. It was just, it was almost like a psychedelic experience your first time, you know? Mm-hmm. What was crazy now thinking about this is Requiem for a Dream had just come out, right? And uh, I watched the whole movie and it was disturbing. I was like, heroin addicts are fucking disgusting. I will never be a heroin addict, you know? Remember the guy loses his fucking arm? at the, mm-hmm. That movie is like... Pimps out his girlfriend. Pimps out his girlfriend. But you don't know that lifestyle when, you know, you're a spoiled kid from the burbs. Sells his mom's TV every, like, week. <laughs> and um, so what ended up happening is, you know, it became fun. Drugs were fun. Keg parties, weed, that Oxycontin experience. Tripping acid was big back then. You know, drugs were fun, you know, and they, my life was not unmanageable. I was in college at the time. And my household started really falling apart. Um, they stopped paying their taxes for quite some time. And, uh, you know, I remember going back to visit them from college and uh, deciding I should stay in Austin and be close to them for some weird reason. You know, I just didn't, I didn't want to be away from them. I was worried about all of them, my little sister especially. And that summer when I moved back, my boy goes, yo, because I'm selling weed. Me and my brother are splitting pounds of weed at this time. We are making good fucking money too, man, you know. I mean, for an 18-year-old. Mm-hmm. This kid calls me. He goes, dude, uh, my boy's dad just died of cancer. And he left a full Ziploc bag of 80s, 40s, 20s, and the little instant release 5 milligram oxys. And I wasn't that concerned because, honestly, I was scared to death to get him and get caught with it. You know, like that's like a major fucking sentence. But he goes, dude, he'll trade you all of them for an ounce of weed. So I remember I did. I was like, fuck it. Let me do this. And I remember for like three straight days, I hid them in like the deepest part of my house. I was like fucking paranoid. I started burying the whole bag in the backyard. Like I thought the cops would, you know, crazy shit. And um, one day, dude, I was just like, you know, doing that 40 was really nice. And, um, you know, I chopped up a 20. It got to the point where, dude, I was chopping up a 20 every like couple hours. And I've been doing oxys for about a month. I was selling them. The bag was like getting depleted. And I was like, you know what? Let me stop doing these. So I stopped. So I stopped doing the oxys after doing them for like a month. I got so fucking sick. And I don't know what dope sick is, right? Wow, you started getting sick already? Yeah, dude, I was doing, bro, I must have been doing at least 400 milligrams a day for like a month. When I started doing them, I I didn't not do them for like a year. So I didn't know. Right. You don't know about the withdrawal, right? And you think you're invincible at that age already. And so when I get involved selling the oxys, I'm selling them to people who do heroin. I remember one of my best customers would fucking shoot them. And I was like, you're disgusting. How do you shoot anything, you fucking animal? <laughs> you know? And I remember going through my first withdrawal and being so sick. My boy at the time, I told him what was going on. He's like, bro, that's what opiate withdrawal is. And I was like, bro, this is the worst. I just don't want to feel like this. He goes, dude, just do a little bit. And I remember, man, I remember that one moment where I knew I was fucked because the withdrawal was so bad and just doing a little bit of oxys made me feel so good. I just couldn't stop. Eventually, the oxys were gone. Told myself I would never do heroin. That was the only thing around. Uh, it was black tar heroin in Texas, you know? I remember, man, the first time I, I snorted black tar heroin. And to snort heroin, you had to... I don't know if people even snorted black tar. Dude, it was crazy. I didn't know Did this people shit. do that? Bro, so listen, you get a needle and you cook it up and you draw up the liquid and then you snort the liquid up your nose and it gets you fucking high. Like, I remember the first time I snorted heroin, I was like, bro, it's like oxys times five, mm-hmm. you know, which just took me further down the rabbit hole. Uh, I was probably about 20 at this time. I'd never even snorted a line of Coke. Mm-hmm. 
right? I thought Coke was a bad drug. Here I am snorting black tar heroin. I had a roommate at the time. I was going to Austin Community College. My parents were in a divorce. Um, I think a lot of the self-medicating was to kind of like deal with what was going on. It was like really sad. Family was deteriorating. My dad was going to lose his dental practice. Uh, I had lost my car. My car got repossessed. You know, my my life was like crumbling, but I really didn't care because I was getting high all the time. All my friends that I had in high school, like I had good friends. You know what I mean? They all weren't there anymore. The only people around now were the people going down my path. So I remember I had this apartment and I went for having this apartment. My roommate was like, dude, you need help. He's like, I'm out of this apartment, bro. Because like all I was doing was doing heroin, sleeping, you know, selling drugs out the fucking apartment and uh, moved back in with my dad. You know, I remember the first time I shot heroin. I had this lady, this lady I knew, she was, she was, you know, cause I was like, you know, I was trying to slang it and finesse my way to get free drugs. And, um, she would shoot it and I knew she shot it and I was tired of snorting it. I wanted something stronger. And I remember, dude, she like shot it in my foot. It was the scariest thing, <laughs> bro. When you shoot heroin for your first time, it's fucking terrifying. And I was so high, dude. I mean, I remember I slept for like 14 straight hours got to the point to where I didn't need someone to do it for me. I started shooting myself, man. And that's when I decided to go to rehab for the first time. And it's crazy because you ever seen the movie Blow? Mm-hmm. And George Young goes uh, to jail or prison. He goes to prison and he goes, you know, went to prison with what, like my bachelor's in weed. Came out with a PhD, PhD in, in cocaine. cocaine. Well, when drug addicts go to fucking detox, they go in with like their, their bachelor's in heroin and they leave with their PhD in drugs, you know? I remember... I went to detox, lasted four days, right? Day two, I get my mom, I call my mom because I'm starting to get sick, you know? And they didn't give you Suboxone back then. They gave you fucking phenobarbital, which is from like the 80s. And you just, <laughs> you just feel like shit. And, you know, like it tries to knock you out, but it doesn't. Told my mom that they, they do sports there, that we were doing sports therapy that day. And I needed my shoes. I'd left my soccer shoes at my friend's house. So I called my dealer and he put two balloons of heroin in the tongue of the soccer shoes and then a needle in the other tongue. How'd you paint? Uh, he was just... Nice guy. No, nah, he just, you know, I, I'd made this guy a lot he of just, fucking like, money. just for you? <laughs> yeah, he'd been to detox too. He knew that he knew how sick I was. Actually, it's funny you mentioned that. So, so she drops off the heroin and they didn't search it and I went and got high like on day number two, you know? I remember like day four, dude. Start getting sick again. Meet this guy in there who explains that he goes to the border to get heroin. And, like, he's like, this dude was Mexican. You know what I mean? Like, he was American, but he had ties in Mexico. And me and him plotted. We, like, took our last dose because the nurse gives you a dose. There's a state-funded place, nothing fancy. They gave us this dose, and we just put it in our hands and walked out, out the door. And we're like, if we get sick later, we'll, t- we'll have this dose. And, dude, within uh, 24 hours, for the first time, I didn't have any money, but I had a car. Uh, I offered to drive the drug dealers to Mexico to pick up heroin, to bring back to Austin. The idea was, so I had this straight up junkie dude. This guy was, you know, this guy was like a 40-year-old junkie. I'm like a young kid, so I can still play off being normal. Mm-hmm. Got this junkie dude in the back of the car. I have Miss, her name is Miss Perez. She was uh, the neighborhood, she was like a 50 or 60-year-old uh, Hispanic woman who like had two kids that were both strung out on heroin. She was normal as hell. She went to church and shit, but just sold heroin. And she's in the front seat, and the idea was we were going to Mexico so I could meet the grandparents of the girl I'm about to marry. It was the worst story ever, right? So <laughs> we get to Mexico, dude, and I'm starting to get sick. And we buy two ounces of heroin. And I remember, dude, 
It was fucking nuts. So that's get, a lot because people sell heroin by the point two. Yes, yeah, so, no, point one was twenty bucks back then, right? So two straight ounces, and dude, in Mexico, two ounces was like fourteen hundred bucks. Not Nothing, bad. and it was raw. So they would take that, bring it back to Austin, and fucking live like kings, you know. So first we have to test it. So that was the cool part because I'm sick, you know. And I remember, bro, they give us needles. I say, go test it. We go test it, like, right behind the house. First off, we're buying heroin. It was a fucking car audio, like, this car audio shop, you know? It'd be like being, like, at Best Buy in America and, like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, let's bring in the heroin, you know? It was fucking weird. And Mexico is, like, desolate. Like, the roads are rock. There's, like, really poor people just roaming around. So we're going to shoot up heroin. Dude, this guy comes out of, like, left field. He's like, oh, let me get, he's like, you know, trying to talk English to me. Like, let me get some. I'm like, no, get the fuck out of it. Like, where did you come from? <laughs> like, dude, like, I'm serious. Like, out the woods, like a fucking crawler from uh, uh, Walking Dead. So uh, we do the heroin. It wasn't even like that great, but we're like, just, you know, let's get it so we can get back home. So the guy in the back seat, I remember, dude, I haven't seen him since, um, put two ounces of heroin up his ass, right? And I remember them getting it ready in a condom and then wrap it like that. It special, it was like this, it was pretty large. <laughs> It was pretty large, dude. <laughs> and I remember I look back, I look at his face, and it's just red, dude. His face is beat red. I'm like, are you okay? He's like, yeah, man. He goes, just don't go over any bumps, man. <laughs> I'm like, the fuck? So we get to the checkpoint, and like you said, are you nervous? Bro, I was shitting my pants. You know what I mean? I was starting to do new things. But when you're, when you're like, strung out, you just don't care. You just roll the dice. You know, like your thought process of like your soul and your God conscience is gone. It's just no one's telling you this is a bad idea. But I was nervous. They see us and right away, like, get out of the car. They didn't even like, you know, ask me questions. They're like, get out of the car. They split all three of us up, put him in a room, put her in a room, put me in a room. Our stories all matched up. Right. What was the story that you're going That we were going there to meet the grandparents to get the blessing. Like they're super Catholic. And I was going to marry her daughter. I see them put him in handcuffs, the mule, the guy with the heroin <laughs> up his ass. I'm like, oh, God damn it. He snitched us out. The fucking idiot had a traffic warrant from San Antonio. So now we're on the American side, right? They took him in. I haven't seen the guy since. Wow. I remember they're like, hey, follow your friend to jail and you can bond him out. Dude, we just, <laughs> we just left. <laughs> just left him in Mexico. Or it was America at this point. I haven't seen that guy ever since, bro. What a scumbag. And shit was bad, dude. Bro, I mean, kept shooting heroin, right? And then went back to treatment. Met a guy who introduced me to crack cocaine. And I remember this, dude. This is, I remember this clear as day. This really nice guy. He was probably about, you know, 33. He was a successful businessman in detox. Really bad heroin addict, right? He bought from Miss P. He's like, I think I seen you at Miss P's house. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got, like, that's like my, my plug. Well, back then we call it Connect. We AMA'd together. And we go to Miss P's. And I remember, dude, I see this guy shoot heroin in his neck, right? I'd never seen that before. He's like, yeah, bro, this is where you're going to be one day if you keep this up. And Miss P's son was there, and he wanted a ride to go buy crack. He was a vicious crackhead. He got free heroin, but he loved to smoke crack, right? And so we all gave him a ride. The guy who was shooting heroin in his neck looks at me, and he goes, don't smoke crack. I'm like, what do you mean, (laughs) right? He goes, you think this is bad? He goes, you go down that road, it gets a lot worse. This is a guy who was shooting heroin in his neck, you know, 30 minutes before. Miss P. Sun pulls out this little fucking busted ass crack pipe. You know what I mean? Where like the Brillo was, all it was was a Brillo and glass. Mm -hmm. And I take my first hit of crack, 
My fucking ears started ringing. Could hardly breathe. I started adding that to my regiment. And dude, it was like... like How life, old are you at this point? Like 22. All my friends are in college. I'm smoking crack with Miss P's son, dude. I'm straight shooting dope. I'm always wearing button-down shirts now. I'm a full-fledged fucking junkie. I was fat Pat. Now I was fucking skinny-ass junkie Pat, you know? My dad was letting me live at his house at this time. I think he felt bad because, um, you know, my mom and, and all the issues going on. I started selling black tar real heavy, like real heavy. And I was getting five grams at a time. Miss P, you know, she would like front it to me. I bring her back her money. And I met this guy in, in the same state run. So like it was called ARC, Austin Recovery Center. It was a state detox. You show up. If there was a bed, they'd let you in. And dude, anytime I got real dope sick, that was like my place to go. I met this guy, David. He was on disability. He got like three G's a month. And he had all this money saved, and he had this nice fucking house in the suburbs, and he loved black tar heroin. He would give me $500 a day to go get him heroin. And, bro, I'd give him, like, half a G for $500. You know, I was, like, robbing this guy. And I would keep four and a half grams for myself. And my habit got so bad. Dude, I was shooting up so much fucking heroin. It, it was like Disney World for a drug addict. Bro, I remember I'd bring him over to my dad's house. Like, this is my new friend, dad. And it's just like a 50-year-old man hanging out with this 22-year-old strung out. Like, I don't... My dad, bro, looking back at it, I put him through a lot. Like, like I just had a kid, right? My kid ever pulled that shit with me, he would have been out of the... You know? Like, I put my dad through hell. It's pretty cool. I don't get to talk about war stories like this. But, dude, this one time, I had five grams in the freezer, Right? And, um, you know, keep it in the freezer. It stays, it stays hard. It's like the, the best place to keep your tar. Well, <laughs> fucking came down. It was a Sunday morning. It was 9 a.m. I go to look for my five grams and I can't find it. I'm starting to tear up this fucking freezer, dude. Like ripping plastic. My dad comes downstairs. He's like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> I go, dad, I gotta get honest. I had five grams of this drug dealer's heroin in the freezer. He goes, What? I was like, yeah, man. It, he goes, wait a minute. He goes, dude, he goes, I came down this morning at like 7 a.m. to get some ice water, and this black thing just came out the ice cubes, so I flushed it down the toilet. I remember, dude, I started crying like a little baby. <laughs> I was like, Dad, I'm going to get killed. Dude, my dad went and wrote me a check for $500. Wrote me a fucking check. Like, codependency at its worst. Didn't understand boundaries. You know... That was like my life at that point, you know? Uh, fast forward, you know, this is probably my favorite part of the story. So shit got really bad, never fucking got clean, went on the methadone program, all right? Uh, started getting heavy in the crack game, because when you get on methadone, you can't get high on heroin anymore. So crack cocaine becomes your best friend, and Xanax. I love crack. Crack and Xanax, too, were like, that was the combo, dude. And I learned how to shoot coke, I learned how to shoot crack. Austin has this area called Runberg. It's real notorious for just fucking whores and crack. And, dude, I'd be all up in Runberg, you know? And my dad's dental office was off Runberg, which is even crazier. Dude, I was on a really bad coke run, right? And I went to the methadone clinic. And, uh, dude, they had been closed for, like, two hours. But I was, like, in cocaine psychosis, okay? And I remember I show up. They're like, dude, we're closed. I started just profusely crying. I don't know. I was just out of my mind. They said I hopped in my car, just drove right onto the highway with like out looking, you know, went straight to my dad's place, come into my dad's dental office barefoot, bleeding out of my feet because I was shooting coke in my feet at this point. My dad's now uh, wife was the dental hygienist at the time, Sherry, went and bought me a pair of shoes at the Payless across the street. 
and drove me home and I slept for 48 straight hours. When I woke up, the car I had wasn't my car. Apparently this kid that owed me $20 for a bag of Coke, I fucking took his car keys in his car and just <laughs> drove off. My dad said he came home at five o'clock in the afternoon and I was holding a boulder over my head, was protecting the house because I was starting to see shadow people and I thought people were after me. And I remember when you were with me in Texas, my dad fucking told you about that mm -hmm. story. He was like, yeah. He's like, I remember he was like, yeah, man, this one time I was leaving to go to work and Pat was holding this rock over his head at the bushes. And when I came home from work, he was still holding this fucking rock Dude, over his head. That was probably, so that was my bottom, the first of many. Um, and my dad shipped me off to Florida. So I come to Florida. South Florida. This is during the... I never heard of a Roxy Cotton, by the way. You fucking people in your Roxy Cottons, right? We had 40s, 80s. We had Oxy 80s, and, and we had Roxy's. Yeah, but the Roxy's were like a Florida thing, yeah. bro. You didn't see those in Texas. What year is this? I think it was like 2005 or six. That's crazy. That's like when I was doing them. So I come. I'm going to start my life over, right? And, uh, you know, I was on the methadone. Anyways... It didn't take long. I think it took me 48 hours to realize there's crack on every block in South Florida, dude. You know, and, and when it, once you're in the crack game, you know how to sniff it out. You just go to the worst neighborhood, you know, like you just, you find it, right? And that's what I did. And I was working at the P.F. Chang's at the Galleria Mall, right on Sunrise. And I would get off work with my tips and I'd walk up a mile to Powerline and Sunrise. And I would literally live in those neighborhoods for 48 hours, come back to work you know, in the same fucking clothes, disgusting, uh, raising hell at the methadone clinic, selling Xanax. And eventually Broward County don't fucking play Austin. I, I never got in trouble. I didn't have a record dude within like, I think four months of being here, uh, I got arrested for, I had Roxy's and I had half a Xanax bars, two separate felonies, went to jail, got bonded out. I was living with my mom at this time. She had moved down here when my parents divorced and uh, I'd met this girl. She was a stripper at Scarlet's. This girl was hot. For some reason, she liked me. She, like, took me into her house, let me live with her. So, I remember, I went to drug court, right? So, like, they bonded me out. They're like, go to drug court. So, I went to drug court, told them I'm on methadone. <laughs> and they're like, well, you, you got to be clean for drug court. And I was like, well, what do I do? They're like, report every month. And once you're off the methadone, we'll start. It's like, what the f So, I never went back, <laughs> right? And at this time, my thinking was like, they never, they don't care about me. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm, they're not giving right a, a warrant. So, about six months later, I'm with that stripper girl. And we got pulled over, and they uh, took me to jail. At this time, I wasn't running as hard, but I was up to like 160 milligrams of methadone. I go to jail, and when you have a warrant for not showing up to court, there ain't no bond. Dude, I remember the first time I kicked methadone cold turkey wow. in Broward County Jail. Was it Joe Nice? That was, bro, was so disgusting. And I remember, like, so, like, so, actually, Broward County is not that bad because they have a detox program. They put you in a five-day. They give you Ativan and shit. Really? Yeah, Texas that. don't give you nothing. But it didn't matter. Bro, after a week is when the withdrawals start happening, you know? And if I could describe how methadone withdrawal really is, you feel like you're 90 years old. Your bones hurt. Mm -hmm. Everything hurts. Your anxiety's through the fucking roof. All you can think about is how you're... F you literally want to rip your legs off and beat yourself over the head until you're unconscious because you're in so much misery. And that is for fucking 60 days, you know? So, like, I remember I'd be detoxing, right, on, on like, day eight. 160 or, milligrams of methadone is an insane amount. Just nothing. I was in the clinic with guys 300 
with wow. them with they, them suitcases. I didn't even know they did that in Florida. Bro, and then was cr- I never abused methadone. So I always took it as prescribed. I loved it. I'd sleep, I'd eat fucking bowls of cereal, fall asleep in the cereal, smoke Marlboros, just feel good on that dose. I knew guys that would buy methadone at the clinic. Like I never did that. I was straight. Heroin addicts would come in, right? And I'd be like on day 10, right? And they'd be my cellmate. And they'd be fucking puking and shitting their pants. You'd take hot showers. Hot showers, the only time you find some solace. Or playing spades, because it might take your mind off it for a minute, right? So, like, they'd come in, they'd shit their pants for four days, five days, and then on day six, they'd be sleeping like a baby. Bro, it'd be like day 14, and I haven't slept yet. Real shit, no sleep. And fucking agony. Anyways, I sat in there for uh, the first time, 45 days, kick the methadone man and you know like this thing about addiction is you just don't like when you don't have any program or understanding of addiction and the disease is so strong in you i always thought i knew it was best for me smoke weed get a job and it's going to be okay you know smoking that little bit of weed was the dumbest thing i could ever done as an addict but i didn't get it and within you know two weeks of getting out of jail i'll be back on fucking heroin or roxy's and then back on the methadone because i didn't want to go because i'm on probation at this time I completed probation somehow. I was on for two years in Broward County. I was drinking those fucking drinks. Bro, they're like 50 bucks a piece. The detox drinks. The detox drinks. And I got off probation, you know? And my life never got better. I stayed on the methadone. Bro, and just basically, it was like terrible relationship after terrible relationship. I went to first to Florida, back to Texas, then to New Jersey. Every state I went to, I got strung back out on heroin, went back on the methadone program. Ended up getting arrested. Started getting arrested in Texas. You know, Texas is way different than Broward, bro. Like, the gangs, like the... Bro, and, and like, I'm a very talkative person, right? So I would go to jail and be like, hey, man, what's, like, what are you in here for? And, bro, they don't play that shit. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? What, who are you, the feds? <laughs> you know? And then, like, the, the, the white people hated me because I talked to all the other races. You know what I mean? Like, I just was not built for jail, like, at all. After a few times going, I learned how to like, you know, how to act. Yeah. But dude, I got, bro, I got (laughs) slaps. I got smacked in the face for no reason. Jail was, and I'd be withdrawn off methadone, you know? (laughs) Dude, you're hitting a cripple right now, you know? So basically, at 30 years old, got in this real toxic relationship with another using heroin addict. So like we would take Xanax together and the cops would come, basically, right? And I started shooting meth, like just bad so in Texas, the state paid for my methadone. Didn't even have money for bus fare usually, right? I had to fucking uh, jump on the, the tri-rail to get to the methadone clinic and, like, pray they didn't catch me that day. You know, like, my life was shit. I, I wasn't employable at this point, you know? Like, trying to go get a job. And, and this is the thing. You can't go to treatment anymore when you're on that high of a dose. They don't fucking take you. Like, they're like, taper off, <laughs> you know? And, yeah, it's um, super hard when you're on methadone. Dude, and I'm in this really toxic relationship with this girl, and she would get her Klonopin and Suboxins on the first, and we would sell the subs, we would smoke crack, eat Xanax. I'd eat too many Xanax. I'd start just calling her a whore. I'd be real verbally abusive. She'd scream at me. I'd scream back at her, and the cops would come. And they took me to jail for my first domestic violence. And I wasn't physically hitting her. It was just like, that's how they are in Texas. Like, you get in a scream match and the cops come, one of y'all going to jail. Bro, I did that three times in a row in three months. Got hit with felony domestic violence, right? Bro, I remember I kicked fucking methadone for like the third time. It was so bad. Basically, I got finally got out of jail. They dropped the charges because she wouldn't. She was like, dude, he's not hitting me. The state dropped them. 
and uh, my brother came down. I remember I got out of jail. I'd been shooting up meth, right? And I remember the only thing I wanted when I got out of jail was these new Nikes. I was like, I'd just gotten these new Nikes. It was like my whole world, bro. I was like a fucking like homeless junkie, right? Bro, I guess I was so methed out. I put on one Nike that was blue and the other was like orange. They didn't match. And the girl at this time had disappeared. So I had no other clothes. So for like a solid week, I was just walking around Austin with mismatched shoes, dude. Like, <laughs> like my life was at its bottom and it didn't stop me from using. I was still smoking weed. My brother came down from uh, Atlantic city, New Jersey, took me down to Atlantic city and you know, I was doing good for about three months, got a job at a real nice steakhouse. I was fucking pumped up cause I just gotten out of jail. I was like, you know, in shape and dude, same thing, disease of addiction. You know, I, he, he was like, you should just smoke weed. And I was like, hell yeah, that's a good plan. We just smoked weed. It was a casino and they had this thing called the poker bar. And if you put five bucks in the machine, they give you as much alcohol as you wanted. So I would drink. And then, dude, the wrong night drinking, I found the projects in Atlantic City, you know? Just bought a little bit of heroin. It was probably about three months later, my brother kicked me out. I was fully back on fucking heroin, smoking crack. Uh, by that time, they started calling me Project Pat because, like, uh, the people I worked with, the line cooks that lived in the projects, but like, dude, I, I see you constantly <laughs> running around the projects like a fuck. Because I always get blacked out drunk to go buy the drugs. So like, dude, you were like out there just wailing like a fucking, like a wild animal running around the projects, you know? I went back on methadone. Um, I got back to that place where I was unemployable. And I was on the methadone program. The methadone clinic was going to kick me off. Like, you got to be, <laughs> they give you a lot of chances, mm -hmm. you know? I remember, bro, like like it was yesterday. I'll never forget this, man. It, you know, I was just reading this book about spirituality, and to truly get to a place of real spirituality, right? You got to go through. That's why I like this podcast name. You know, hell has an exit. So I've been in hell for so long. You know, I was on an animalistic level, and I didn't want to die. You know, and I cried. I remember like bawling my eyes out. Dad hadn't talked to me in years. Well, no, he'd still talk to me here and there to make sure I wasn't dead, but just like no one was around. I was in Atlantic City. My brother had taken off, you know. No one was around. I just couldn't do it anymore. And I was willing to do whatever it took to not feel like that moment, like how I felt. And I really feel like that's where God intervened in my life. Like I really feel like that's where I had a spiritual awakening. And I met this kid. He was in the methadone program with me. He had like... They'll put you in rehab on methadone down there. And I guess he came back from rehab and uh, he got heavily involved in Narcotics Anonymous, right? And this kid was bad, dude. He robbed fucking people. He used to hang out at the sex store and act like he was gay and just like rob fucking gay dude. Like he was hardcore, bro. Like I was never a tough guy, bro. Actually, two weeks before I decided to get clean, I got beat up by a 14 and 16 year old. I was trying to buy crack and they beat the shit out of me like in an alley. Like I was never like, <laughs> like, you know, you got like fight or flight. I was like the fucking flight guy. Like naturally. I remember like these, these kids started whooping my ass and I just started, <laughs> you know, throwing my arms up, you know, there was something to this kid, dude. There's something to him. I had to know. I came up to him and I was nervous as fuck. And I said, bro, I need help. You know, looks him dead in the eyes. And he goes, yeah, dude. He goes, you do need help. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, bro, you were barred out of your mind about uh, a week ago in IOP. And like you asked this ridiculously dumb question and everyone started laughing and you just turned around and like, like when you're on Xanax and you give people that evil eye, like you're going to really kill them. You know, <laughs> he was like, I don't know what you're on, but like you, you really, you're good. Something bad's going to happen. 
So he took me to my first NA meeting. And all he asked of me was, give a shout out to my boy, John P. All he asked of me was to not get high. He goes, just don't get high and come with me to this meeting. I lived in Atlantic City when you're like really down to your lowest of the low. They have these things called boarding houses and you pay for them by the week. You rent them by the week. They're full of bed bugs. They're on top of like Irish bars. They're disgusting. Well, he lived in the boarding house across the street. So like I remember, like we met up and he took my first NA meeting, bro. In the fucking heart of the ghetto of Atlantic City. I walk in there, dude. People are talking about fucking clean time. People hugged me up. Dude, I'll never forget that first NA meeting where I found hope. You know, like going from this shell of a human being to like... That was the first time you ever experienced bro, I a 12 I almost meeting. cry right now because, dude, I knew it was going to be okay. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I just... Like, life had just gotten away from me for so long. I thought I was going to die. You know, like, I welcomed death. And, and I didn't understand that I could ever be happy, right? And I'm on... Don't get me wrong. I'm on methadone at this time. But that night, I went home and I threw away all my weed. And they, they gave me a basic text. And dude... The next morning, I was like, John, what's up, dude? Like, like you know, like eight in the morning, I'm like, when's the next meeting? You know, like they say, do 90 meetings, 90 days. Me and this fucking kid, we probably did like 300, 400 meetings in 90 days in Atlantic City. And dude, I started going down on my methadone. I remember I would pick up key tags. They're like, you can't pick up a key tag. You're not clean. And I was like, whatever, bro. <laughs> I'd pick up my 30-day key tag. <laughs> They'd be like, he's not clean. You know, whatever. Dude. In a, I gotta say, narcotics fucking anonymous at that time saved my life. So this is my story, right? So I'm, so like, it's like where like the recovery starts. My mom starts talking to me again. She like, she knows something's different in me, you know. I'm calling her all the time. I'm checking on her, seeing how things are going, and she lets me come down to uh, South Florida with her. And um, I'd been, dude, heavy in NA, dude, practicing honesty, praying every day you know, feeling good about myself. I get down to like at that point, probably like 60 milligrams of methadone. Come to South Florida, bro. South Florida is so different than Atlantic City's NA, dude. You know, like meetings out there were an hour and a half. I come to South Florida, it's a bunch of fucking kids. I remember I go to this meeting at Mainliners. I rode my bike up there from my mom's house on the beach. Bro, I'm like, I'm fat. I'm beat down. You know, the methadone really, bro, oh, I, I had probably gotten up to like 270 pounds at that time, right? And uh, I had a bicycle. I go up to the meeting and, you know, it was just, it was just really different. It was very clicky. There were hot girls all around. I just, you know, I didn't feel very comfortable. And I remember, I think I left that meeting and started to go look into AA. Cause I was just like, like NA to me seemed like a circus, mm -hmm. you know? I remember, man, I, I go to meetings all the time, dude. You'd always just catch me hanging out at the 12 step house. It was the 12 step house. And then back in the day they had, what was it? Was it back on track? Back on track. Back yeah. on track with the couches. And I got abducted by this like AA cult because I was such a loser bro, in recovery, right? There was this AA cult called the South Florida Group. Shout out to the South Florida Group. And they basically like look for like just lame ass dudes, you know, like walking up to the meeting with a backpack, no friends. And like, hey, man, like, do you believe in God? And like, do you believe in recovery? I'm like, how fucking yeah, I believe in God, motherfucker. You know what I mean? And then like ended up getting involved with that. And it was like a nightmare. Anyways, long and short is I made some friends in recovery and they ended up uh, getting me into treatment. This was back when you could like buy insurance through Obamacare very cheaply. And, and I went to my first treatment center with a whole head full of step work. You tapered off methadone at that time? Successfully. Yourself? I got off of it myself. That's crazy. Yeah. That um, never happens. Oh, and hear me out though. At the very end. So I switched from methadone to Suboxone, right? Got down to like eight milligrams a day, down to like a quarter of a milligram. 
and dude, I remember I took a trip to Texas and I, I smoked weed one time and then I started shooting heroin for about 10 days. So let me put that disclaimer in there. And my boy who's going to meetings with me was like, dude, I can get you into a detox by this insurance. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, bro, buy this insurance. I'll get you into treatment like tomorrow. So I bought the insurance. He like walked me through it, got me into this like, bro, I remember like a van came and picked me up for detox, like this nice van. I was like, what the fuck is this? Like in Texas, bro, you got to like beg to go to detox and get in line and you know, and they picked me up and they took me to detox. There was a fucking movie theater in this place. It was called the Haven Detox and bro, there's all these kids in there. I remember, bro, like I was like dead set on staying clean, right? Brought my fucking uh, big book at the time. I was doing AA. Brought my big book. I was that kid preaching uh, the big book in detox. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like I was on my path, man. You know, I, like I was real serious about recovery. I remember all these kids were like, bro, come to this treatment center. We'll pay you. I was like, what the fuck? I was like, what do you mean you'll pay me? Like, why would you pay me to go to treatment? Dude, all I knew is I had a path. I was like, I'm on God's path. I'm not going to get thrown off that. I'm going to the treatment center I'm supposed to go to which happened to be in Fort Lauderdale. I'm so glad I How followed How did you that. start believing in God? Because was it just through like NA? No, it was pain. It was the pain, dude. It was just this breaking point in my life where I, I legitimately asked God for help, not to get out of a situation, but just to be there with me. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it wasn't about get me out of jail and I'm going to do it. It was like, God, I'm at the end. Like I'm at my rope. And then N.A. just enforced that. You know what I'm saying? Like N.A. just, I feel like I've heard this before and I fucking believe it with my all my being. Uh, God brought me to N.A. and then N.A. brought me closer to God. You know what I'm saying? Because when I came in there, I, I, was, I was just like so desperate and I just felt this sense of warmth when I was in there like it was right. You know, and it's crazy because I'm on methadone, but dude, something about recovery is so strong. You can be on methadone and feel God. You can feel change and honesty. You can change as a person and be on maintenance drugs. You just got to fucking get off of them because there's no mm -hmm. end game with them. You know what I mean? And so when I got clean and I go to treatment, I'm fat, but I'm full of hope. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, dude, I'm going to exercise. They have an exercise. Like they take you to the gym. I'm going to work out. I'm going to eat healthy. I'm going to get a sponsor. Bro, the first sponsor I got, so I went back to NA uh, because, so so when you get off all the drugs, bro, you start thinking about women. You know what I mean? Like, my libido was shot because of methadone. But when I got clean, I was like, bro, I, like, where the hose at? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and NA had the hose, dude. So I so I was like, I'm joining NA again, you know? But I wanted to have recovery. So, like, it was like trying to find that balance. Like, I really want to stay clean. And I, the one thing I knew is staying clean was the ultimate goal. This old head in Atlantic City told me, if you come to NA to get women, you'll get laid. If you come to NA to recovery for recovery, you'll, you'll stay clean. And that was like my motto. I'm going to stay clean, not worry about getting laid. I, I went to halfway. Like everything changed about me. Any suggestion the treatment center t uh, gave me, I took. Went to halfway. Fucking never did that before, bro. I remember I put together 30 days clean. Um, I had my job at Carabas. And uh, I went to halfway, bro. All the kids are like 23. I'm 33. You know what I mean? They're there on their parents' insurance acting the fucking fool. I'm having fun, though, because I'm trying to, like, diet and exercise. And they're a bunch of you. And I remember, bro, like, I'd be so fucked up, bro. I was like a 16-year-old myself. I was wearing snapbacks. You know, I was like 33. But, dude, my mind, I hadn't stopped using drugs since I was 16. Mm -hmm. That was my, my mindset. And I was fat. You know, I was like two, I was about 276 when I got clean and started going to the gym, started eating right, started going to fucking meetings again, started praying, was doing great at my job. I got promoted to the head waiter within two months at my job. 
I had lost 30 pounds in two months. Women started like talking to me, you know? I started like becoming alive, started saving money. Within three months, I put the first down payment on my car. You know, I went from riding the bus for like, bro, for like 16 months. You know, when I hear people complain about the bus, and this was going to the methadone clinic in the morning first. I'm just like, bro, I'm just like gas up on life. So look, within six months, I become head waiter. This is when I met you. I met you when I think I had three months clean. So Brian Alzate, right? Uh, don't know about this guy. I'm at the meeting. Uh, it's a church, the seventh heaven meeting. Brian's the speaker. Um, I'd run through two sponsors because, dude, like one relapsed. The other was like fucking the girls in, in the IOP he worked at. You know, like like my my relationships with sponsors was terrible. But I but I knew that wasn't the program. It was them. You know, like we're addicts, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people get hung up on that. Oh, my sponsor's full of shit. I'm going to go use or, you know, make up excuses. But like, you know, you don't look at the people in NA. You look at the NA and people. So I see you. And bro, you had this crazy ass energy and you were funny. And I remember you were talking, you weren't talking about the drugs actually. You were talking about like the behavior is clean and uh, how you were like addicted to ice cream and you would microwave ice cream and drink it. Like that's like the level it had taken you to. And I just remember like, yo, this guy is fucking interesting, right? Uh, Drew A was with you and he like introduced you and he's like, bro, we're running fortune. Yeah, Drew is just so fucking gassed up. He's like, we're running fortune 500 companies out here, but Brian A is still doing his H and I commitment. And I'm like, yo, this guy, Brian's off the chain. Right. And I asked you to sponsor me and you were a good sponsor, man. I think we went through the the first six steps together, did a four step. My first four step with another man clean was with Mm -hmm. you. And dude, I just kept progressing, bro. At this point, uh, I'd lost a hundred pounds lost 100 pounds. I had been promoted in my job uh, at Carabas. I was managing, I was the only person that stayed clean out of the treatment center I went to. Started managing their halfway house, got real close with the owner. Some crazy shit went down with that. South Florida treatment's just wild. And I remember talking to you about it and you were like, you know, you were like, uh, dude, a lot of shit you're doing shady. <laughs> yeah, I was like, did your boss explain that that was illegal? You're like, that's not illegal. And then yeah. two days later, you're like, bro, it is it illegal. Is illegal. <laughs> I was like, I told you. <laughs> they were wrong. But like, he drove a Rolls Royce. But you know, like, hey, look, dude, young guy. And I don't like making excuses, but reality is, you know, that, that money will fuck you up. Mm-hmm. You know? And what was cool about you, I always respected, was you weren't ever about money. You were just like, you would just apply what NA taught you to every aspect of your life. And you were like, the money will just come. I'm just going to be a successful person because of NA, not I'm chasing money and I forget about NA. You always instilled that in me. The greatest investment I could ever make was in my recovery. And that today still sticks in my head, even though I will forget it. Bro, life was good. And then, so what happened is I met this girl. So I'd been kind of like whoring myself out. Cause like, dude, I'm getting laid for the first time. In like five years, you know what I mean? Like I was having a ball. I was having sex with girls. I probably, that were like way younger than me. That shouldn't be, wasn't feeling good about it. Wasn't trying to get in a relationship either. And I met this girl at a meeting and uh, she was with her sponsee, Sarah, little Sarah B. At first it was all like manipulation. Like I wanted to get to know her. I thought she was pretty. I was like, come with me to Lester's, you know, you know, the old Lester's trick. And uh, <laughs> she changed my life that day, bro. Like I, I, it was weird because looking back at it now, I fell in love. Like, I didn't know what love was, but I knew I couldn't stay away from her. And it wasn't obsession. It was like like we were drawn to each other. And her name is Rachel. 
Yeah, bro. You think you have a crazy story? Rachel's story is crazy. Yeah, you got to get her on here next. But all right, so look. Okay, so that's another thing, right? So yeah, so like my, like real talk, bro, like I know I'm a fucking, the I don't want to say real deal, but I'm a very bad drug addict. You know, I was shooting up crack, you know, like there isn't a drug I haven't done. When I met Rachel and we would like share war stories, I'd be like, yo, stop, stop telling me your story. Like, <laughs> this is getting traumatic. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I thought my shit was badass, dude. Like, you know, whatever, you know, she was born in Broward County jail, both parents, drug addicts, you know, like I came from fucking the suburbs, but uh, so fell in love with this girl, but dude, she worked such a solid program and I found that very attractive. I always found what I think helped me in my recovery is I always found people with, you know, John, my boy, Jonathan G., he used to go to this midnight meeting. He was like the only dude with recovery, bro. It was like a bunch of wild fucking animals in there, you know? And Jonathan G would just be him. He was like, and like, I was always gravitated to that. Like, how do I get there? You know, like, how do I get Brian's energy and happiness, you know? And that's how they teach you in this. You know, you want something, you fucking chase it. And you don't, it doesn't come to you, right? Like, you put the footwork in. Like, to have you as my sponsor, like, I was calling you every fucking day. Mm-hmm. I remember. Like, I had to chase you down. You were actually a busy fucking guy. Uh, Rachel, man, didn't want to get in a relationship, you know? I had to go work some steps on that shit. I had to become a man. I was a little boy when I met her. And it drove me. I remember I switched sponsors at that time with you. You were doing, you were, you were opening up uh, a treatment center. And uh, I felt... You didn't have enough time for me, but that's like more my own shit. But we still kept a good relationship. You asked me to come work for you, bro. And it was fucking wild. The beginning of a treatment center opening. We didn't know what we were doing back then, dude. You would you didn't have experience with this stuff. Like when I think about it now, it's like, bro, I was 25. You were twenty bro, you were 25. You had NA again. You had narcotics anonymous. That was how you your foundation of your treatment center was NA. That's all it was. Like you held boundaries when people were doing shady shit. You just kept the path. Anyways, dude, life just started getting better, man. At one year clean, Rachel asked me out and said, uh, we can date now. You know, I started dating. My life had gotten better in all areas. I started saving money. Uh, you know, I was working really hard with, with you. You know, my fitness, one thing that happened is I was really proud of myself for losing all that weight. Like I was really proud of it. And I kept my recovery. I kept going to meetings. I started focusing on my job and, you know, I got away from my fitness. I mean, dude, at 18 months clean, I bought my first house. 18 months clean. Bro, I was homeless two years before that. Living on my mom's couch, bought my first house. You know, had Rachel move in with me, had a girl move in with me, you know? Every year has just been, you know, they tell you this in the rooms. They say, uh, a life beyond your wildest dreams. Dude, I started getting fat. You know, I'm in a relationship now with Rachel. I'm getting fat, but I don't care. Dude, life's getting great. I remember fucking proposing to my wife, right, who's a hardcore drug addict too, who's in recovery, proposing to her in front of my grandma who had just been diagnosed with cancer and six months to live. The same grandma who called me up saying, hey, you know, you cast your birthday check twice. Like, I don't have the money in my account to fucking cover you cashing. Like, I frauded her birthday check she sent to me every month. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? You know, she was thinking I was going to die. Proposing in front of her, getting married. You were my best man at my wedding. Yeah, I remember going to your wedding and meeting your whole family. My whole and, family. And, bro, everybody had, like, the craziest stories about you. I remember, like, yeah, your dude. one crazy uncle was like, we thought he was dead. We, we wrote him <laughs> off as dead. I remember he was like, 
if you would have said that Pat's life cost a dime, it'd be too much. Right. And he was just like, I never thought we would ever see him ever again. We wrote him off as dead. And I remember just like talking to everyone in your family and how crazy they are. It was funny. I was a hopeless junkie. You know what I mean? Getting married now in Vermont. My family once sent me up to Vermont to get me away from drugs, right? I found heroin in Vermont. You know what I mean? I got kicked out of Vermont. I was a fucking nightmare. And here I am getting married. My fucking, you know, cousin who I got to snort heroin with me one night and smoke crack, right? So, like, I lived in Jersey. My cousin was there. I got him to, like, it's like a normal kid. And I remember uh, everyone gave their speeches, and my cousin still has resentments towards me, but <laughs> he goes, who here smoke crack with Pat? Like, that was, like, at my wedding speech, you know what I mean? Like, it was fucking wild. So, one of the things I always wanted, I've always wanted to be a dad, man. My dad was a good dad. He was a good dad. He was a natural dad. He loved me unconditionally. That was his biggest fault was he loved me too much. I always wanted to have a kid. Rachel had three kids already. Dude, I thought my dick didn't work because of all the fucking drugs I put in my system. And I'm like 36. I'll never forget the day. I was, I mean, to be fully honest, I was taking a shit. <laughs> Rachel knocks on the door. She goes, babe, we're pregnant. I was like, you couldn't have waited until I got out of the bathroom to tell me? Because now if, like, I'm always going to remember this moment. <laughs> you know? Found out we're having a kid. This was... um. About a year ago now, I think. Mm -hmm. I found out it was a boy. I remember, dude. First, it was a kid. That was great. But then I was like, fuck, it might be a girl. Not that that'd be a bad thing, but for number one, I wanted it to be a boy. And then it was a, it was a boy. And then COVID happened, dude. I mean, bro, as addicts, yo, COVID wasn't shit to me ever. I was like never afraid of it. I remember like normal people would be fucking hoarding toilet paper and freaking out, you know? And oh, I was like, you guys have obviously never kicked methadone. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, like addicts don't get scared by much, you know? And uh, she was pregnant during COVID. What's really crazy is when a girl gets pregnant, if your relationship's not solid, you're going to fucking know because you're going to fight a lot. And dude, we kept it together. So out of nowhere, Rachel gets news that her stepmom died. Not COVID related, just randomly. 60, I think she's about 65. Rachel's dad and his... And her stepmom had been together for 40 fucking years. Drug addicts wow. had seven years clean together, too. You never hear that. Like, you never see a couple that used together get clean together. Mm -hmm. It just never happens. And he was devastated, and he had to come live with us. And he was living on our couch. And Rachel's, like, nine months pregnant. And we just had a baby, man. We had a baby three months ago, dude. Congrats, man. Dude, you know, before I came over here, I was I was playing with my kid. And it's hard not to get emotional about this, but, like... I could have never, that day walking into my first NA meeting, I could never imagine one day I would fucking be a dad, you know? And like, I think about being a father and all the shit I put my fucking parents through. You know what I mean? Like, I owe them a lifetime of amends just because if my kid ends up being an addict, I don't, like, I love this, this guy so much. Like, my life is so good. We just closed on a new house. We were able to buy another house. I don't even have to sell my other house to buy another house because we need to get a bigger house for all of us. But like, dude, like my life, like people have lost their jobs right now during COVID. You know what I mean? I'm beyond grateful. Thank you, bro. You know? And uh, to be over here talking on a fucking, someone invited me on a podcast. That alone is just like, holy shit. You know what I mean? Hell does have a fucking exit, bro. 
You know, my life is, and I've gotten back into working out again. You know, I'm trying, there's never balance in life. I learned that there's never balance. I'm never going to have the perfect amount of money. I'm never going to have the perfect body. I'm never going to have the perfect program. But when something starts lacking and the pain gets great enough in that area, I've learned I don't have to use over it. That's the key. That's it. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming out, Pat. You're the man. Congrats <laughs> on your baby, bro. It's awesome to see you uh, transform because I remember when you had a scooter. You know what I mean? I remember you had like the scooter and like the apron and you would like go work at Carabas and like to see how far you've come is always like, you know, I saw the whole thing. Yeah, you've been, you had a front row seat. Yeah, it was definitely awesome to see. And just being a part of your wedding and seeing you like just blossom into like this adult, you know? Yeah. You helped me out with a lot of my Bitcoin stuff. You know, what's crazy is, so like my dad will call me for advice now, right? I used to show up to my dad's house with a suitcase being kicked out of another halfway house mm -hmm. and he would act like he wasn't home. Like, you know, like when you show up <laughs> to someone's house and you know they're in there and you're like knocking on the door and like, like the lights are just off all of a sudden, you know what I mean? Bro, like that was like how like our relationship was. My dad will call me up crying saying how proud of me he is and then like ask me like hey how, how do you do this or like what do you feel about that that to me is mind-blowing mm -hmm. like you said you met my dad if you still you meet my dad to this day he always tells you these stories about like yeah i thought you know patrick was like having that cocaine psychosis and he had lost his mind i remember he told my brother that day when i was holding that rock he was like oh your brother finally lost his fucking mind <laughs> you know what i mean like they're like he's, he's went too deep so you know well, I love you, man. Thank you for coming out. All right. Love you too, Brian. Appreciate it. This show is not affiliated with any specific 12-step program. If you or a loved one is struggling with an addiction, please find a local 12-step meeting. If you believe you may need detox or drug treatment of any kind, please call 888-699-9395 to speak to a specialist. The show is sponsored by United Recovery Project, a state-of-the-art drug and alcohol rehab facility. You can visit our website at unitedrecoveryproject.com.